It's better to be healthy alone than sick with someone else. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my shitshows. Shitshow nation! (laughs) Shitshow nation! Don't worry, I'm not going to do that every time. So I just had this interaction with um, a listener, Hey Vanessa, on Instagram, and she made a comment saying that I am more attractive or prettier than she thought I was going to be. I'm curious, what does my voice sound like? What did you think I was going to look like before you saw what I looked like? Or if you don't know what I look like yet, I want you to tell me, what do you think I look like? I will not be offended at all. You can tell me that you think I sound like I'm, (sighs) I don't know what to say there. Uh, moving it along. Hi, I'm Andrea. I'm a shit show. And today we are joined by friend of the pod, returning guest, and host of the podcast that I know many of y'all love, including myself. It's not you, it's your trauma, Mr. Joe Ryan. As always, he does not disappoint in this conversation. And to his reluctance, we mostly talked about his dating life. So what the hell dating has looked like for him as it relates to having complex trauma and as it relates to complex PTSD and how he has navigated this landscape. And it is just proof that healing is possible. And we actually can get to a place where we make better choices and where dating is not the miserable hellhole that it once was. You know, when I first started doing this work, this adult child recovery work, I had a fear that I was not going to be able to change in this arena, that dating was always going to be a miserable experience for me, and that I was always going to be attracted to the wrong person. But that didn't turn out to be the case. There has been so much growth, so much healing for me in this arena, and I'm telling you, I'm promising you that it's also possible for you. So I got two dating stories that have occurred in the last week. Uh, that I want to share with you. And side note, I'm about to leave San Francisco in a few days. So these are very low stake dates, right? I mean, but who am I kidding me? Like, I'm the person that met a guy on vacation, probably spent three hours with him. And on the plane ride home, I was thinking about how I can go spend Thanksgiving with him and his family. And he can come spend Christmas with me and my family. So uh, who am I kidding? Are the stakes ever, ever low for us shit shows? Uh, But story number one. So I'm talking to this guy on Bumble and we're going back and forth. And then well, we said that we were going to hang out on like Wednesday or whatever. And um, I said, call me tomorrow and then we can figure out a plan. So it's the next day and he does not call. That was yesterday. And so then today around, I don't know, 11 this morning, I get a text from him and it just says, hey, mama. And <laughs> hey, mama. <laughs> and I wrote back and I said, you blew it. And he, what did he say? I already decked deleted the text thread, but he said something like, 
I've been known to do that or something. And then he said, what exactly is my transgression? And so I did not reply to him. And then, I don't know, 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later, he sends me this long message about all the things that had happened to him the day before, and this had happened and that, and he got up at five, and then he did this, and he blah, 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 blah. But then he ended the message of saying something like, I'm not always going to be able to call princess. <laughs> I said, yeah, of course things come up. However, you say, hey, I'm sorry, I wasn't able to call you yesterday. Something came up. When's a good time for me to call uh, today? And he responded saying, what a bitch. <laughs> what a bitch. So there's the growth there, right? So he didn't call that day in the past. Then that would activate my anxious attachment style. And so then the next morning when I eventually would hear from him, I would just be willing to take any sort of crumbs. Um, but in my opinion, I think somebody who was uh, emotionally healthy would say, hey, sorry, I couldn't call you. Not like, hey, mama, and then pretend like you don't know what I mean when he said you blew it, and then you actually do know what you mean, and then you send a sob story, and then you call me princess. So how about you go fuck yourself, okay? <laughs> so that was dating story number one. Now here is for dating story number two. So I also matched with another guy on a dating app this past weekend. And so we're messaging back and forth and there's this instantaneous connection, right? There's this banter. He was able to pick up on my sarcasm and there's good dialogue back and forth. And we end up uh, FaceTiming and we are on the phone for quite a long time. And there is this immediate attraction. There is this like intense um, I don't know, lust or chemistry. He essentially, in a nutshell, he activated, I don't want to know if you want to say my anxious attachment style or what, but he produced that feeling in me that I can only describe as the feeling that I felt in the beginning of all of my relationships that turned out to be awful, toxic <laughs> relationships. It's kind of like this high, like he is activating something within me and it's not good like it's not it's not a good thing and so there's only been one other time that I've felt this way through during my adult child recovery and so I briefly talked about this when this happened but I didn't really go into any details but this it's now almost a year ago so I'm going to tell you the full story now okay so it's January and I am on LinkedIn. So I was trying to find sponsors for the podcast. And so I was going on LinkedIn and I was looking up who was in the decision makers at various uh, treatment centers to see if they'd be interested in sponsoring the podcast. So I connect with this one guy who works at a treatment center um, in a different state and we're messaging back and forth and same thing there's like kind of like this instant banter back and forth whatever and so then we end up talking on the phone the next day for like over an hour and he seemed really great and there was just this instant connection and this instant attraction and he had been sober for like, I don't know, over 25 years. He was like smart and he was tall and he was funny and he seemed like he had his shit together. I really, really, really liked him. And he, I got, I had those butterfly feelings. It was the first time that I really had like had a crush on somebody 
since Brian number two. And so, as I said, he lived in a different state and he said that he was going to come and fly out here to, to meet me in a couple weeks. But we start communicating, not all day, every day, but we start talking on the phone, like FaceTiming at night for like, you know, an hour or two hours, essentially not taking things slow, right? It's kind of like this like rushed intimacy. And it was also the first time that I had felt the, those feelings of, of hypervigilance and my fear of abandonment getting triggered. Like I had not felt that in a long time since Brian number two. And so when those feelings would come up, when I was waiting for him to call, when he said he was going to call or this or that, find myself going into that, um, into that trauma response. And what was different about it this time was that I was able to acknowledge what was going on, that I was having a reaction to something in my past, that this fear actually had nothing to do with him and everything to do with my childhood. And I was able to like stop and reparent myself and sit through the uncomfortable emotions and talk to my inner child and let her know that she's safe, that I love her, that I'm not going to abandon her, and the feeling would pass. And then he eventually would call. Like every time I had those feelings that I was like, oh, this is it. I'm never going to hear from him ever again. He eventually would call. And then I was like, oh my God, you know, this must be the, uh, this must be the universe like, giving me a sign that, uh, that I can trust someone. Then, then the red flag came. So he had shared with me that he played poker. So he played poker a couple times a week. And so I was just like under the impression that, I don't know, he gets together with some buddies. I didn't really think much of it. But so we're on the phone one night and he made a comment about how he was on his way home from the casino. And I said to him, oh, I didn't realize that you played at the casino. I thought you just played in, I don't know, with your friends. And he goes, well, normally I play in this, these really high stakes game, but I lost over $200,000 like over the course of three games. And woo, 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 like red flag, red flag, red flag. <laughs> so, so essentially what he's saying is that he, he lost all this money, but so, but he's taking a break from that, but he's not taking a break from, from gambling at large. He's just playing, you know, with lower stakes. So, um, I don't even understand how this guy could have $200,000 to blow just like that. But regardless, um, this you know, gambling addiction. I mean, come on now, guys. <laughs> I think they call that chasing the loss when um, when somebody with gambling addiction loses a shitload of money. It's like then they just keep playing and playing and playing because they have this fantasy that they're going to win everything that they lost back in one hand. And so there was also like some other red flags too, one of which being that he had been separated from his wife for like, I don't know, over two years, but he didn't, it didn't seem like he, the divorce was really in process. So that was a red flag. But so after this like gambling thing came up, I called, I don't know who I called and, uh, and I just shared it with them because in the past I would over... I would overlook something like that. I wouldn't tell anyone about it. And I was, you know, talking to a friend and I said, this is, you know, this is 100% a non-negotiable, right? And she's like, yes, this is a non-negotiable. And so right at that time, he kind of vanished. He disappeared. He ghosted me. We had been talking every day. And it was like after we had that conversation where he shared that he had lost all, um, 
all of his money. And also in that conversation, I said, do you know when you're coming? And he was like, no. And I made a comment. I'm like, are you just like stringing me along? Like, what's the deal here? Uh, so yeah, so he, he disappears. And then it's like next week, it's five days later. And I shoot him a text and I said, did you die? And he responded, said no. And I said, uh, are you pulling a Brian number one sober edition on me? So he had listened to the first episode of the podcast. So for you, for those of you who don't know, uh, Brian number one ghosted me, but in active alcohol alcoholism, this guy was sober. And so I said, are you pulling a sober Brian number one on me? And then it was about 15 minutes later that he, he called and he essentially said to me, it's the distance. It's just that we don't live in the same location. But in that moment, when he said to me, when he said that to me, what I heard was, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough because if I was good enough, it wouldn't matter that we live apart. If I was good enough, you wouldn't care if I lived on Mars, right? <laughs> Mind you, I had already made this decision that um, this wasn't going to be the relationship for me anyways. But regardless, it still, it still hurt and it still triggered those feelings of abandonment and those feelings of not being good enough. And so after we get off the phone, again, I paused, I breathed, I sat through the trauma response and it wasn't long before it came to me that I was like, Andrea, this actually has absolutely nothing to do with you. This does not reflect upon you and your value and your worth in, in the slightest. And really, I, I had received such a gift about, you know, a couple weeks before this happened. I've sh I all of a sudden I went into my um, Instagram DMs. I've shared this and I had a message from Brian number one. And what he said in that message was that, it, no, it wasn't you. It was that I was an alcoholic. And when that had happened, I thought it was me. I thought it was because I was not good enough. And because Brian number one had given me that gift a few weeks prior, you know, I was able to see and understand and accept that this situation too, this had absolutely nothing to do with me and absolutely nothing to do with me being good enough. Uh, so back to the story. Uh, so yes, so I, I get this feeling with this guy over the weekend and there were some, um, there were some, some red flags too. And it became pretty apparent that he was emotionally unavailable, but I was like, let's have a little fun or <laughs> this is somebody that I probably shouldn't go on a date out on a date with, but Hey, I'm leaving in, in five days, so who cares? So then we hung out the next day and it was, you know, it really was. I was like getting this fix and this like hit of oxytocin. It was just a really, it almost felt like I was doing something wrong in a way. Um, I don't really know how to explain it, um, but it was such an interesting experience for me to just kind of observe what was going on for me within my body and um, when he dropped me off, he said that he would, he would, he was going to text me or he was going to call me later that night. And I never heard from him. And today it's Wednesday. So it's been three days and I st have still not heard from him. So you guys in the past, like I would be in the fucking fetal position right now. I would probably not even be able to get 
a podcast episode out. Like, <laughs> like that's all it would take, right? It, like one date or like a few days of really intensely communicating with somebody and, and having that connection. Like that would be enough for me to get sucked down into the madness and just get sucked into the disease and have my sense of self, my peace of mind hijacked by another person. And it is such a a miracle that that's no longer me. That is no longer me. I have developed this strong sense of, of self. And I no longer need to look externally for feelings of self-worth or self-esteem or just feeling okay with who I am. I think part of it too is that I now have purpose in my life. You know, we talk about how we need to, you know, build a life and that helps. Now, I always had a life in the past when, you know, I was in these relationships prior to recovery. It's not like I didn't have a life, but what I didn't have was purpose. I did not have purpose in my life. My purpose, as I've shared before, was to find a guy and get married. So of course I'm going to be rattled and like shaken up in relationships because that I attached my purpose to that. Like that was my mission in life. But now not only do I have this sense of self, but I also have this sense of purpose that no one can break down. <sighs> and that's a fucking miracle. I actually just went on a date tonight. Um, I got home about an hour ago. It was good. Definitely no romantic uh, connection there, but it was great conversation. He was very interested in me and asked me lots of questions, which I love because uh, one of my favorite pastimes is talking about myself. Uh, and he also uh, helped me to understand cryptocurrency blockchain shit more than anybody else has in the past. So any other time I've asked someone to explain crypto stuff, blockchain stuff. I'm always more confused after the conversation than I was when I started. And uh, this guy tonight, actually, he he did a good job of of explaining things to me. So I, I have a little bit more of a, an understanding of what the hell's going on in that world. That's enough out of me. So let's get the show on the road. few things first. Number one, we are going to do a Q&A. We're going to have a live virtual event with Rebecca Manville. So she was our guest last week on the podcast, um, the, the scapegoat queen. So it's going to be on the first Saturday in January. So it's going to be on uh, Saturday, January 7th at 1230 Eastern, 930 a.m. Pacific. And so I will be providing you guys with more information about that either on Shit Show Saturday or uh, next week's pod. I just need to set up the event. Um, so I'll let you know when you can get tickets for that. Uh, number two, how about you damn the join Patreon? This is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups. This is where you meet some cool, rad shit shows. Head on over to patreon.com slash adult child. I'm telling you, do it now. I'm telling you, do it now. This community is fucking rad. Uh, next, you can give me a little follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, at Adult Child Pod, and whatever you do, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. And last but not least, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor this much, 
much, this much, this sponsor this month, this month, uh, Eleanor Health. So we had Nzinga Harrison on a few weeks ago. So she is one of their co-founders and the chief medical officer. And so Eleanor is a treatment provider, an addiction treatment provider. They have locations in Louisiana, Massachusetts, Jersey, North Carolina, Ohio, Texas, Washington State. Uh, they have many different services. They have medical-assisted addiction treatment services. They have recovery coaching. They have psychiatry. They have counselors. They have support groups. They got a lot. And what I like about them is that they realize that when it comes to addiction treatment, it's not one size fits all. They're not. A, there's not just one way to recovery, one way of recovery. Each of us are different and we're all going to have our own unique recovery journey. So go check out the show notes for all of their information. The truth of the matter, my dear shit shows, is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago, and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now, let me tell you about Done. Done is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit get.donefirst.com slash podcast to learn more. Again, that is get.donefirst.com slash podcast. Done. Turn ADHD into your strength. Okay, he's back. What What are you supposed to say first? The myth. What comes before the myth and the legend? <laughs> the neurotic. I don't yeah, know. the neur- yeah, the shit show. The shit show. The myth. The, the legend. <laughs> Joe Ryan. Hi. Hey, Andrea. How are you? <laughs> Good. So you know you're the first person that I ever asked the question. What song do you want played when you walk into a room? And now I always ask that. I can't remember what you said. I don't remember what it was last time, but... Uh, Let's hear what fight. it is now. Soul Fight by the Revivalist. It might have been that. I'm Okay, I, I just want to check back in with you, though. I did look up some of the other answers that you gave me. I just want to see if anything's changed, okay? okay. Are, you still preferring, <laughs> are you still preferring smooth over chunky peanut butter? Always. Okay, I'm really hoping that you're going to change your answer here, but I don't think you will. Are you still preferring grape jelly over strawberry? Oh, absolutely. Oh, God. But you said you prefer strawberries over grapes. Yes. I'm, okay. I'm, a, I'm a weird cat. Yeah. Salt is your favorite condiment. Yep. Um, Any new pet peeves to update us on? You had endless small text. Oh, but you said you said small tark because you had your accent. <laughs> yeah. Small tark via text. <laughs> I have an accent. Uh, and talking when artists are performing. Do you have any new pet peeves that you'd like to add? Yeah, lack of self-awareness of, of what's around you. Um, the city's gotten real busy with a lot of tourists, and they seem to want to just stop wherever they are and look up and take pictures. And then there's like this big log jam of people 
jamming into each other. So just try to be aware of your surroundings. One time I was at a concert and it was so dark and I'm so tall. And <laughs> there was a girl next to me who was like really short and she was out of my peripheral vision. So I just kept, you know, cause I got long <laughs> limbs. I just kept hitting like, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't see you. <laughs> she needs some heels, get her a yeah. little more elevated. So two other questions that I always ask that I haven't asked you are what's your favorite carb? Oh God, semolina bread. Okay. And what's your favorite cheese? Uh, depends what it is. If it's crackers, it's Swiss. If it's on like a hero, it's usually American. A hero. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Here's some, here's some other good ones. Okay. Mm -hmm. So would you rather have a hook for a hand or a peg for a leg? Oh, um, wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking sports right now, what I, which I can perform better with. I probably would get better running with the leg than throwing with a hook. So I'm going to take the peg leg. Okay, peg leg. Um, this is one of my favorites. Would you rather start every sentence with, hey, idiot, or end every sentence with, haha, just kidding? Haha, uh, uh, just kidding. I think it's, I don't think so, because I think that would be so fucking confusing. You would have to say everything in reverse. Hopefully by the time you get to the end of the sentence, they've forgotten that you've started it with, hey, idiot, you know? That's a good point. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, would you rather have your breath smell like a fart or have your laugh sound like a fart? Where'd you come up with these? <laughs> I don't know. That's got to go right down the middle. I guess it depends on the company I'm in. <laughs> Having your laugh sound like a fart could actually be like really fun. Yeah, but I like to go under the radar. So uh, <laughs> I'm thinking the other way around, I'd just be chewing a lot of gum or eating breath mints all the time. <laughs> okay, what about this? Would you rather sleep in between the the um, the mattress and the box spring or have to sleep in a giant hamster cage? No, oh, I like heavy on top. So I'd go in between. <laughs> <laughs> you ever use those weighted blankets yeah they're the shit they are um so i have several things that we can talk about why don't we start so okay let's do like a little let's do like a little recap of of your significant romantic life oh that's thank you the, the wound is almost healing thanks for picking at the scab <laughs> how old were you when you got married uh, it was probably very late 20s. Okay. And you yeah. were married for how long? A long time, About right? 11 years. Okay. Yeah. And then when was it that you met, I don't know what her name is. Uh, Francine with the car accident. It was right after the marriage. As it was, as it was ending, we ran into each other and we both decided to wait until I finished my business at home. Did you know and her beforehand? I did. I've known her since I was five, but oh. we didn't run in the same circles. My mother and her mother were friends. And when I had lost my business, I ended up spending a lot of time on Facebook and connecting all people from high school again. And we put a reunion together. We reconnected there. And I had no interest. She didn't have any interest. And then um, the two of us got invited to a mutual friend's wedding. And that's when we reconnected and we ended up realizing that we had a lot in common and we took it from there. And so then how long was it from there until your divorce was finalized that you guys started dating? Uh, well, 
you know, we met, we realized that we liked each other. I knew I had some stuff to take care of, and she definitely was not going to get into anything until that was done, which was a smart move. And I had told her, I said, don't expect me to rush this. And she's like, I don't expect that. And I'm like, well, I hope you're here on the other side. And she was. And then we dated for about a year. And um, we were in Florida. I told the story before. She was like, I want to talk to you. And I'm like, don't break up with me on vacation. I can't handle the plane ride home next to you. You know, and she was like, she's like, you're the first real man I ever met. I traveled the world seven times over. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I'm moving back to Long Island. and I want to merge families. How do you feel about that? And I was like, I love it. This is great. I'm so happy. And um, she was concerned because she had gained like three pounds and we were down in Florida. It was warm. So she wanted to get her running in to knock off some pounds. And I was like, don't go to the right, go up to the beach because there's a sidewalk. And she was like, well, if I don't come back, will you come looking for me? I'm like, of course. Never came back. Um, found her at the hospital. You know, she didn't know who I was for a couple of months. She has a couple of pounds of metal holding her together, traumatic brain injury. And, um, you know, at some point, like you can't you can't feel what you need to feel because I had to take care of her, her mother and everything. So it was really high functioning considering what was going on inside of me. We got her back. She had lived in Jersey. I was on Long Island at that point. And when we had gotten back, I actually had time and space where it wasn't caretaking 24 seven. And then the feelings and the emotions mm. that I had pushed down had started to come up and I started to fall apart. And, you know, she had a lot of work to do and couldn't deal with my breakdown at that point. So she had ended it and it was it was pretty mm. tough. And that's it's so interesting because I feel like before that life was good. You know, even though I'd lost the business and was, go, you know, going through the divorce and all that, I just always felt I felt pretty good about where I was personally and emotionally. And ever since that day, I never realized how it really had fucked me up for friendships and intimate relationships. The thought of any kind of loss Scared the was shit something I just I just couldn't handle. So, you know, I always say, you know, the amount of joy I'm going to allow myself to have. To, uh, to have is based on the amount of loss I feel like I can handle. I couldn't felt like I couldn't handle any loss. So there was very little joy or anything positive in my life. I was kind of stuck and stagnant. And, you know, people would try to get close to me and I would just bolt. Like I just, it was like, wait, what's that a feeling? Is there an emotion, emotional attachment? I got to go. And um, it took me a while for that to start to ease and I was able to start getting closer a little here and a little there. But I never really thought I was ever going to have that feeling with anybody ever again. Like, it was so remarkable how uh, you just kind of won. Um, you know, there's no other outside world. You kind of know each other on a deep level. You can take care of each other without caretaking. I, I can't really truly explain it. We just had this sink to us that was like nothing else I'd ever experienced before. And I had missed it for a long time, but then I was afraid like, you know, if I get close to somebody and they go away, I knew I wasn't ready to handle it. When was that? When was her accident? That was uh, a little over 11 years ago. Do you know how she's doing now? Um, Did she like fully pretty- recover? 
No, I mean, not fully. She still walks with a limp. She has, I think, I think the doctor said it was like nine pounds of metal holding her together. Um, you know, her memory started to come back. She wasn't as sharp. I mean, she was really creative. She was a fashion designer. She was an interior designer. She was witty. She was creative. She was worldly. She was dynamic. She had this, this energy about her when she walked in a room, you know, how some people are over the top for attention. And she just walked into a room and she was just very light and airy and people seemed to gravitate towards her. And it wasn't like an ego thing for her. It just was who she was. So I don't know. We haven't had contact in, uh, in quite a while, but you know, uh, we have mutual friends. So when I run into them, I ask how she's doing and she's back to work and she's been in a relationship for quite some time and she seems like she's doing well. So I'm glad about that. Does it seem like another world? Like it must not even seem real in a way. Yeah. I mean, that hurt lasted, I mean, for a very long time. I mean, I couldn't shake it and it was always the what ifs and, you know, my heart was still attached for, you know, I'm talking four or five years after, like I just could not let go of it. Um, now it, I feel like I've done the work. It's not painful talking about it. I don't have that emotional attachment. I feel like I've grieved it out of me. Did you ever make any connections between that and your childhood at all? Like, were there any kind of through lines? Um, she was different than anybody I had ever dated. Usually I can walk into a room and find the most damaged, abused person in the room without even looking around. Like I could just feel heaviness and I'm like, oh, there's an attraction like over my left shoulder. I can feel it, you know, don't turn <laughs> yeah. around. Type and things. that means run for the hills. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but usually I'm more to flame like that because I'm trying to fix my childhood <laughs> parent issues through women. Um, but she was different in that way. But the, the similarities were it was the abandonment. So, you know, I took care of her and her family. We got her back to Jersey. You know, she was on the road to recovery and you know, the way it ended and the way she cut me loose had felt very familiar to my childhood. So I felt like I had worked on my abandonment issues, even though I really hadn't. Um, I mean, I did to some degree, but that felt like it opened up a huge, huge wound. And it, I really hadn't been the same since then until very recently. I'm talking within the next last few months. Um, but other, it was the abandonment that that I'd felt of, I showed up for you. I showed up for your family. I kind of abandoned myself and put my own hurt and grieving aside to get you healthy. And then it was like, okay, now I'm hurting. And she told me to go fuck myself. So that felt, felt like childhood to me. And that just opened a wound that I feel like I've been working on for about a decade. Mm -hmm. And so then you, you didn't date for a while. Uh, well, after the breakup, I, I went out pretty hard, um, you know, just kind of slept around to numb out. Like I wasn't, I'm always, I've always been an emotional person and I had no feelings and no emotions. So I just kind of slept around not to feel. And that ran its course at some point where it was like, I'm tired of this life. I'm tired of putting on an act. I'm tired of pretending I'm tired of not feeling. And I took about three years off where I did not date anyone. Um, and you get to sit in your loneliness and your sadness and, you know, the shame, you know, when you're a child and you're, you're, 
you're told you're wrong or you do something wrong, you, you're put into isolation. So when I'm alone, I had always felt shame. So I always had people around me, which mm-hmm. is part of the reason I'm so codependent. So I wanted to be alone for a couple of years and I just didn't engage with family, friends or relationships. And I did a lot of work. Um, and the first relationship out of that three years was, was brutal because <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I got this now. And man, did it all come up and it came up hard. And it's, it's the body reactions. It's the panic. It was that day of the accident plus all mm. the childhood abandonment where, you know, when I felt something wasn't right, I felt like she may be looking, you know, leaning elsewhere or this may end this reaction happened in my body that I have no control over and it's it's frightening and i think about being a grown man and feeling these intense fears and panic and just you know terror like it feels like you're gonna die and it's like really you're a grown man it's a breakup relax bro and i'm like but i can't relax i'm in panic this is like flashbacks so it was still hard when i first started dating again yeah so what did you feel like because I've experienced this and it's kind of, it's the being able to have the awareness of like, Oh, this is what's going on. I'm reacting to something in my past and not to something in my present. So in this most recent relationship, what do you feel like you did differently in the beginning stages that you didn't do in past relationships? Okay. Well, the relationship I was just talking about was the first one out of the three years. Okay. When was that? uh, That was about, I guess about two, maybe two and a half years ago. Okay. And how long um, did that one last? That was a couple of months. Um, it's a funny story. So I like I started to get this weird feeling and I'm like, something's not right. Like mm-hmm, I can just mm-hmm. feel it. And um, so I'm like, did I miss something? So I opened up the dating app that we had met on and I looked and I'm like, wow, those pictures look familiar on our profile. Oh yeah, I took those. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about this. Oh yes. And I was like, so I called her out on it and she was just like, what take? And she ended up taking me to uh, see Tony Bennett, Lady Gaga's last performance at Radio City. So she goes, wait, introducing you to all my friends and spending all that money on that concert doesn't mean anything. I said, yeah, that absolutely makes up for fucking other men when you told me you weren't. (laughs) (laughs) And she she had the nerve to tell me I was mean. I was like, I'm mean. Okay, got it. Uh, Looking back on that, were there any red flags that you think that you missed? Oh, absolutely. It was, you know, I mean, three years, celibacy, no dating, no affection. Um, So there was that, you know, there was that itch that wanted to be scratched that Mm -hmm. and, you know, we did get along. We had a good time. She was fun. You know, she liked to go on adventure. She's like, I want to go to Governor's Island. And she would plan the whole day. She's like, I want to go through the, you know, this, uh, the street art in Bushwick. Like she would plan these great things and take me all over. And it was just, it wasn't big money items. It was just fun days out. And I really liked that. And, you know, we were intimately, we were very compatible. And which was great for me for such a long time off. I had so much anxiety and so much fear about getting back into it. And <laughs> what I could see, it was brutal. It was, it was brutal. I'm like, I hope today's not the day. I don't know if I'm emotionally ready for this. But um, the red flags I did ignore because the desire for connection was so great at that point. Mm. And I was having a lot of fun. If I was in a place where I was just looking to date, you know, have a dinner companion, something, somebody to 
go and do things with, you know, sleep with once in a while. But I felt like I wanted a relationship. And I think she wanted to have several relationships. She wanted to fill a lot of her time. What would have been a red flag that you overlooked? Um, well, the, um, you know, she was going in between jobs and, you know, so she was like, I'm going to take time off before I go start this new job. I have three weeks. So she was going down South to visit a friend one week. She's going to be in New York and her and I were going to go away the second week. And then the third week she was going up to Maine or some shit like that. And then all of a sudden she changed the week that we were supposed to get together. She went someplace else. Mm. And I was like, all right, she doesn't really seem to care. That's three weeks. Why did this change, you know, six or seven days before we were supposed to go? And then it was just, after that, you could feel it. There was just a little distance. It wasn't, it wasn't as important for her as it was for me. And I got to the point, and I can't chase anymore. I just don't do it, you know. But I could feel like if I am not chasing this, it will probably go away. And I didn't chase, and I just it started to kind of fall apart. And then it's the intimacy dance, right? I needed eight inches intimacy. She needed ten. When I pulled back to 12, she freaked out and leaned back in the closest space. Oh and then um, and then it was it just didn't feel right. And I that was it. I looked at the app and I was like, OK, my feelings were correct. So then I just kind of loosely dated for a little while. And then, you know, I was kind of just seeing one or two people, seeing where it was going to go. And I picked up my phone because I'd gotten an alert from one of the apps. And I looked at the, the picture and I'm like, this woman is absolutely stunning. There is no way I'm going out with her. I'm just going to be way too insecure in this. And I was kind of like, you know what? You're a different guy now. Just go and just see how it is. And 20 minutes into the date, I felt like I knew her for a long time. And I felt like I could see through, you know, the beauty and, you know, the image that that had shown up. And I was hooked big time. and I was, it was funny because, you know, I'm like, how do I do this? Like, I know I'm going to be a mess trying to play it cool for the next couple of days before I contacted her. So I walked her to a corner and she goes, all right, I'm right here. And I was like, all right. I said, listen, I just want to tell you, I said, a really great time. I'm going to drive myself crazy for the next 24 to 48 hours to figure out how to be cool and contact you and see if you're still interested. So I'm just going to tell you right now, I had a great time. I would love to see you again. Mm. And she turned her head like almost like a confused dog. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> she was like, okay. And I don't think she knew how to process process it. And that was what was different with that relationship. I kind of kept showing up as me and not playing games. And I was honest and I was very, very vulnerable in ways that I had never really truly been. I knew I liked her. I knew that they, we both felt something. And I just had to do it differently. And I just was very vulnerable. When you said that within 20 minutes, felt like you knew her. How do you differentiate between, because sometimes that could be a red flag, right? So it's like, how do you differentiate between like, this is a good feeling versus this is my attachment getting activated? Well, I think it gets easier the more you pay attention to it. And, you know, I kept thinking about that a lot. Um, I mean, there was some 
you know, there were some things of, that were trauma bond. There is that no matter who you date, no matter how much work you do, there's always going to be some level of trauma bond. But she was different in a lot of ways. And since Francine with the car accident, I have not felt that strongly about anybody. And I did not think I was ever going to feel that again. Mm. So there was fear crept in <laughs> big time. You know, I mean, for the first month or so, I'd wake up pretty much in a panic every day, wondering, you know, did she get hit by a car? Is she going mm. to leave? And is this somebody else? Like I just I kept having those flashbacks. The more my heart got involved, she had no idea. I was a fucking wreck until noon every day, you know? Um, mm. But I just paid attention to it. And I tried to see, you know, am I trying to heal something? Am I trying to fill a void? You know, am I being codependent? Am I showing up, you know, with confidence? You know, why am I here? What is, what's turning me on about this? What turns me off? What do I like? What don't I like? And trying the things that I didn't like, I tried to see if it was just my ego and my past issues, you know, cause I have a habit of not paying attention when I don't get my needs met. Cause I want, I need somebody to blame. And instead of being all angry and, you know, withholding and withdrawing and putting up walls, I took a look at it and I have a friend that I trust and I would call him up and I go, am I crazy here for feeling this way? And he's like, you're absolutely 100% wrong. I'm like, I don't hear that often. He goes, I know, but you're wrong. And he kind of kept me on track for a while to get through the beginning rough patches until we kind of settled in and we knew that we were going to be together for a while. And then those feelings, pretty the emotional flashback stopped mostly. Yeah, they they definitely eased up. Um, you know, the more time together, when I realized that you know I wasn't going to wake up and she was going to tell me we're done, or you know, I I had to take the that whole car accident thing uh, out of my head. Like every time I would leave her apartment, I usually would walk home, and it's like almost fifty block walk. You know, and at the beginning, I would walk home all the time instead of taking the subway so I can kind of get my nervous system down because I was always had that car accident fear. But after a while, it, you know, just working through it and talking it out with somebody and, you know, realizing that the, the fear isn't in the moment, it's from the past and, you know, work through where it, it pretty much went away after a while. What a miracle. <laughs> Until it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't imagine what it was like for you to get to that place and feel comfortable and then to, and then to sense that shift in this, in this most recent one. Yeah. Like when you, when you finally sense a shift, are you freaking the fuck out? Well, I didn't feel a shift. I, I got a text and it was like, we need to do something. I thought like you said that you thought you felt like she had been acting a little bit differently. Well, it was, I mean, I was up, I was up in Pennsylvania. I came back and I talked to her on the phone and she got off quick and she said, I'll text you later. And I thought that was about going out. And I thought that was, it was just kind of weird the way she had said it. And then I got a text. Um, do we need to talk? I, I, something like, I think we need to talk. Don't you? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> and I'm like, what's going on? She's like, I think we need to talk. So we met for dinner and I was like, I asked her what was going on. And, you know, I didn't have, I didn't feel all of that abandonment come up. Like it was just, I figured there was just something had come up, 
And, you know, we kind of talked it through and we were back on track and she got scared. She got scared because, you know, she, she was like, I love you. You're my best friend. Like, and I'm like, and you want to end it because why? <laughs> like, it's a weird way to lean into it. But I think it was that she was feeling so strongly that it was freaking her out. Mm-hmm. And I don't think she thought she could go and open up more. And she probably knew that that's what I was wanted. Um, But the thing is, I felt like we could do it together because we had so many of the same issues. Like, and we would talk about it at the beginning. I'm like, it's crazy how, how similar we are. We kind of, we took the relationship very slow. And like, I liked it because we got to, as we were going slow, it's easier to see and identify the issues mm-hmm. and where people are uncomfortable and why. And we, it was so much of it was so similar. And we kind of worked through it together, which was really nice. And then I think she just got to a point where it was like, you know what, this experiment's over. I want to go back to what it, you know, what my life was before this. How was the dialogue in your head different during this breakup than it was in past relationships? Um. Well, when she was like, we have to talk, I didn't internalize it. Like I wasn't good enough. Mm. You know, normally it would be this panic and I'm just, it's like, you know, you're spiraling down this drain of, of just worthlessness and, you know, loser and not good enough and abandonment. And I was like, I didn't really feel any of that. And the reason I didn't feel that is because, and you asked me how I did this differently. I showed up as me really for the first time ever in this way. I was open. I was honest. I was genuine. I was vulnerable. You know, I was emotional, you know, like the manly shit. You never tell a woman I would voice it. You know, I'm like, that made me real feel really insecure. Here are the eight reasons why it has nothing to do with you, but I didn't want to act weird and have you feel it. And that was so hard to do. So And we all have, I did an episode called cut and burn. We all have that cut and burn point in relationships, right? So for me, there's a certain point of either betrayal or disrespect that as soon as it hits, I'm like, fuck you. I am out of here. This, you know, I'm really hurt, but I'm going to be angry at you. So I don't feel my hurt. And this time as hurt as I was, I didn't cut and burn. And I talked myself through that point that I had never gotten past before And there was so much value on the other side of that cut and burn point. There was so much to learn about yourself, you know, pride and ego and family history and childhood shit that stops you from being vulnerable, open and loving past the point where your feelings are hurt. There's so much more on the other side of that. And I just kept going into it and I kept getting further into it. And, you know, even the last time we were together, I mean, I just laid it all out there, you know, and it was humiliating and it was embarrassing and it was, it was revealing. It was transparent. I thought it was badass from what you shared with me. So I just, it, well, from a guy's point of view, it's hard for me to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I loved her so much that I wasn't going to let past childhood abuse, all of that shit, my ego, my pride, my macho bullshit get in the way this time. So when it ended, yeah, I was angry. Yeah, I was hurt. You know, she could have handled some of it so much better. So could I. But if I didn't get past that cut and burn point and really humble myself, which is what it felt like, 
I wouldn't have learned what I learned and I wouldn't have known without a shadow of a doubt that I gave it everything I humanly possibly could. And I have nothing to feel bad about. Mm-hmm. And that is great. And even after the breakup, you know, my thing is, let me go out and you know start eating pills, drinking bourbon and sleeping around. So I don't have to feel anything. You know, I want to feel wanted. I want to feel valued. I want somebody to be interested in me to, to fill that empty void that just left. And I didn't do any of that. I sat, I sat at home a lot. I got to be honest with you, but I sat in the the shame and the hurt and the pain and the rejection, the betrayal and the abandonment. And I worked through it to the point where like, I feel really good right now because mm-hmm. I took the time and I missed the best part of the weather in New York. It was like September and October. It's beautiful here. And I'm sitting in my apartment every day. By the time I felt better, (laughs) I got out there. I got ski gloves and a ski hat and a scarf. But I didn't care about missing out because I needed to heal. I needed to take care of myself. I needed to be there for me. And I had nothing to give anybody else. And I didn't want to leave a wake of hurt in my way like I always had before. Like I took my shit out on people in front of me because I was in so much pain and they would scratch their head and go, I don't understand. It was going great. And you left. And it was like, well, I got what I needed. So now I'm gone. And that's a shitty human being right there. And I just can't, I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And you know, I I think that at this point in your recovery, that even if you had tried to like go out and sleep, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work anymore. You know, like it would, it wouldn't work. Not like it worked Uh, before, but it would, you know, it kind of worked, but until it didn't. But like, I don't even think you would get any sort of relief. It was a, it's a postponement of grieving. That's Mm -hmm. what it is. Sooner or later, you're going to have to grieve, whether it's, you know, in six months or 16 years, but postponing the grief, it's like this dull aching pain that lasts with you day in and day out until you actually do the work of grieving. I had to grieve this, the loss of this relationship, like a death. Like I was hurt and my life completely changed. Yeah, You know, there's a big void in it and there's a lot of empty time that has to be filled that used to be filled with her. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, how am I going to fill this negatively or positively? And, you know, it was a better choice. And the grieving didn't last as long and drawn out because I was numbing out for so long, I just sat in it and I just was hating life every single day. But there was a love and a care and an understanding for myself at that point that I usually don't have. Like who wants to sit in that? No, it's garbage. Yeah. Okay, I won't make you talk anymore about your relationship life. (laughs) (laughs) Good thing we didn't do this like six weeks ago. This would have been a completely different interview. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Okay. I have some questions. Um, Let's pull this up. Okay. So this is from Colleen Coco. She's like your number one fan. The one that writes all of your notes down or all of your episodes down. Yeah. Okay. So she says this, the subject is family systems boundaries. You talk about when you do the work and you start to change and your emotional caregiver role no longer serves the family system. This can cause the emotionally unhealthy family member to be triggered and lash out in anger. In this scenario, when the unhealthy family member is presenting an entirely delusional idea about who you are as a person, because you are no longer serving an emotional need 
and there is no use in defending the delusion, how are you able to come to acceptance and continue to proceed with a relationship? I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Well, how much time do we have? There's a lot, there's a lot there. <laughs> to unpack that um, right now. You know, uh, I'll talk from my perspective. I didn't know who I was. I created a false self to be loved and to, to survive. So I was had to be these certain things. If I wasn't those things, I got punished, abused, criticized, shamed, whatever. I don't know who I am because I had to abandon myself. So I always codependent relied on other mirroring faces to tell me who I was and if I was good or bad, because I didn't know it in me. I believed what the mirrors were around me. So I became this nice guy, people pleaser, caretaker. And when I was that, I got back what I needed in my family system. But I never took the time to know who I was. So by cutting out my family and taking the time to sit in my shame, to understand my role, to find out who I am, you see, I never really thought I was a good person. I never thought that I had worth and value. So when I would set boundaries in my family and they would guilt me and shame me, I would internalize that. Like they were right. I was wrong. I can't set these boundaries anymore. And then I would abandon myself over and over and over again. I had to take the time and do the work to figure out who I was. I can now show up with people in my life that I have a specific role with, and they can try to guilt and shame me into becoming what they want me to be so they don't feel uncomfortable and not let it affect me. But it's, it, it takes a lot of time. I mean, saying no in a family system when you are the people pleaser, when you are the caregiver, it, it, it's not allowed. So I had to start off very slow with saying no. It would be like, um, you know, your aunt's coming in from Rockland County this weekend. You know, all the cousins are coming. Can you get the kids and come in? And normally I would be like, I would cancel all the plans with my kids and I'd make myself available and show up because that's what I'm supposed to do. That's my role. Mm -hmm. It got to the point where it was like, no, sorry, I already had plans. And they would guilt and shame me and I can hear it. And then I would get texts from family who were there. Where are you? How come you're not here? And I just had to ignore it, you know, or I would say um, I had previous plans with the kids. The, the thing is, it's the way we deal with it internally, right? So they're going to shame and guilt us. And that's going to set us on fire inside. We're no good. We feel our shame. We feel not good enough. We feel not lovable. We're not in our role. People aren't going to like us. We're going to be kicked out of this family system if we don't abide by their rules. It's learning how to deal with that internal body reaction when you do start setting boundaries. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the point where it's, it doesn't even bother you anymore. Like people, you know, people, people are people, you know, even if it's not in your family system, you have friends that are used to you a certain way and you're just not in the mood to put up with their bullshit one day. And you're like, yeah, bro, I just, I'm not going. It's like, what do you mean? How can you not go? And you just, you learn how not to let it affect you. Start paying attention to the body reactions that you have and start to learn how to manage them and pause at that trauma response. When you get that trigger, you know, you're, you're going to fawn, you're going to flee, you're going to fight. Take a moment and just let those feelings wash over you and give it that, that moment that it needs where you don't get that default reaction. Start paying attention to how your body reacts and how you react after you're triggered. It's about dismantling your triggers. People can say whatever they want about me. And if I am 
in a mentally and emotionally healthy place, most of the time I am not going to be triggered Mm -hmm. because I've worked on the body reactions where it doesn't matter anymore what they think or what they say. So it's finding out who you are, understanding your body reactions and trying to kind of just dismantle the triggers. Yeah. And you, so, and the last thing she said, how are you able to come to acceptance and continue to proceed with the relationship? I mean, my understanding is that you don't have a relationship with your parents, right? Um, I recently uh, started getting back in touch with my mother and father. Good. Um, <laughs> after all the time away, um, they're, they're pretty cautious with me. Um, I haven't seen them much, but they don't want me leaving now. You see, I left, it, it crushed them. And I had to leave for my own reasons. And I really, truly wasn't trying to like put the dagger in and turn it. I just didn't account for their emotional feelings anymore. And I was taking care of my own. And then, you know, the result of it is they got hurt. So I've gone back and I've spent time with them a little here and a little there. And I get to go back as me, not that, not their son, not the caretaker, not the role. I came back as who I am. And if they guilt and shame me, which they haven't yet, and I don't know when that's going to happen, but it, it will happen at some point. I can actually just look at them now and go, well, that's who they are. They don't know any better. And I am mm-hmm. healthier place. I don't need to react. I don't need to take this personally. I do not need to internalize it. And I do not need to push back, tell them they're wrong, get angry, get sad about or feel bad about myself. It doesn't, it gets to the point where it just doesn't matter. And that's such a great place to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like I had something similar with my dad too, where like I took a significant break in the relationship and it allowed me to get kind of the power back in the relationship some. And that's, and that's, that is, it's the power, right? So here's the thing. They, this is what I never realized. They needed me more than I needed them. I just never knew that until I left. So there was a dependency both ways. They made me codependent. They made me emotionally dependent. They made me needy on from them. And they made me think that I needed them more than they needed me. But in reality, they don't. And I can tell you, if somebody keeps trying to guilt you and shame you when you're setting boundaries, if you do not give in, they're going to have to make a choice at some point. Mm -hmm. They're either going to have to change the way they interact with you Mm -hmm. or they're basically going to tell you to go fuck yourself. Mm -hmm. And either way, for me, I feel like you win. If they tell me to go fuck myself, that's great because now all the pressure's off me. They walked away. And if they change how they interact with me, I win also because now I'm not giving into their guilt and shame. It's, it's holding firm sooner or later. They have to see that it's not working. And if you keep trying something 20, 30, 40 times, and you're not getting the results you want, you're going to try a different way. How about just being fucking honest? Mm -hmm. You know, be honest with me. Don't control me. Don't manipulate me. Don't guilt me. Just say you're not feeling enough love for me and you'd like a hug. That's not so fucking difficult. Mm-hmm. So ha- what have you noticed in the way that they're interacting with you? Um, they're cautious. You know, uh, one of my parents, I think he's, you know, he, I think my father's just kind of entertaining it because it's more important to my mother. I'm not really sure. Um, but when I sat down with them, you know, um, I trained it out to Long Island. We met at a diner and we sat down and I was like, you know, so how are we going to do this? And she's like, I don't know. I said, are we going over the past? Are you going to go down that road or are we just going to pretend it didn't happen? 
Hmm. And she goes, I'm not going back in the past. I said, okay, I think I'm good with that. I've done enough work. I've satisfied it in myself. I don't need anything from you in that respect. I said, so we'll just take it from here. You will never hear another word about anything that ever happened in the past for me again. And the next two or three times that I saw them, it was polite. It was, you know, it was like running into an old neighbor that you hadn't seen in a while. There was none of that family dynamic. There was none of that emotional undercurrent where you, you could just feel your stomach starting to churn. Like there was nothing. It was, it was nice, light, airy, and easy. I think, you know, the rest of my family still telling me to go fuck myself, I'm pretty sure. Um, and it's ironically, I was just at a wake on Long Island on Tuesday, and I walked up the stairs, and there was my sister and my brother-in-law who I hadn't seen or spoken to in five years. So I just walked over and said hello and walked away. You know, I don't, the anger was hurting me more mm-hmm. than it was hurting them at this point. It was my protection. I needed to tell them to fuck off. I needed to isolate. I needed to work on my guilt and my shame. But there was a point where I'd done enough work on it that the anger was just eating me away because I was holding on to something that didn't need to be held on to. I don't need them to apologize. I don't need them to be nice to me. I don't need them to like me. I don't need them in my life. So the anger was keeping me bound to them in a very negative, unhealthy way. So, you know, I had a big problem with my sister. I felt more betrayed by her in the last 20 years than anybody else in my family. And that took me a while to get over. And now it's like, it doesn't matter because it's, I become a prisoner to my anger and my resentment. Mm -hmm. I don't have the freedom. Like if I didn't go say hi to them, how uncomfortable would the rest of that wake been? where the three of us are in this room where people are mourning and, you know, you're in your head and you can feel the emotions coming. I had none of that. I said hello and I walked away. And I never thought about him again after that. If I didn't say anything, I would have been obsessing the entire time. Do I go over them? What are they thinking? Are they going to come over and talk to me? If they do come over, what am I going to say? How should I be? Should I be angry, standoffish? Should I hug her? Should I be not? There was none of that. Do your parents show any interest in what you're doing now professionally? <laughs> Uh, no, and they never will. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know. I started this when I wasn't speaking to them. I know that they're aware of it. I guess, you know, somehow friends, relatives, I don't know. I know they know it. When I was sitting them one day, you know, I said something about the coaching business. And, you know, she's like, how are you doing? I said, good. I said, business is really good. She's like, what are you doing now? So I I do coaching. I coach people through their abuse and their trauma and their anxiety and, you know, trying to become more authentic and live a better life. And she was like, you want a glass of water? You want something to eat? And I'm like, yeah, I'll have a glass of water like that. They can't go there. The way I'm living my life and the choices that I made, I am an embarrassment. You know, I, they're a very shame-based family. They wanted me to shine in certain ways. I tried to live up to what they wanted. And for many years I did. And at some point I, you know, Apple put me out of business. I was in bankruptcy. I was homeless. I was ashamed of myself. I was humiliated. I was embarrassed. I couldn't be around them. I couldn't stand their the pathetic looks on their face for how they were looking at me. And I made choices that were right for me. It's never going to be right for them. 
they're never really going to give me the credit or the acknowledgement for what I do. And, you know, part of me when I started doing this and it started to take off, it was almost like, yeah, fuck you. Look at me now. All right. Look at this. I'm actually doing something for myself. But yeah. And helping away. people. Yeah. It does. It doesn't matter if it doesn't fit into their box, then it's wrong. So, I mean, that's why I'm so hard on myself. They were so judgmental for, you know, and I could hear the way they would talk about other people, but I don't think, I don't think they'll ever acknowledge it. I have a feeling that I know one of my nieces has listened to an episode because she told my son. Um, I'm sure my father probably dipped in, but I can guarantee you my mother will never go near it. I've been really, I've been really surprised, pleasantly surprised at my parents' reaction to my stuff. So I mean, they express that positive. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, just that little bit of support. Like, all we really want to do is be loved and supported and valued by our parents. How long did you try to make them feel proud of you? And you kept failing. And when you keep failing, you start to go down destructive paths because you can't handle the disappointment for them. So for them to show up with all the work that you've done on yourself and be able to support you is fantastic. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think, too, the fact that I've just built it all myself without asking for their help, I think that that's like a big part of it. But no, they're, I mean, obviously, there's, they listen a little bit, but they can't really go there. I mean, obviously, Mm -hmm. we can't have, I would love it to be to where like, they'd be like, oh, I just listened to so and that's such an interesting, you know, like, I wish that we could have those kind of diet, like, that's not going to be possible ever. But right. the fact that they didn't like completely write me off, like that's pretty great. <laughs> that's awesome. When they found yeah. out, when when my when my mom initially found out that I was doing the podcast, she said to me, she's like, can you keep me and your dad out of it? And I said, I said, you know, I've talked about this a lot with my therapist. I said, it's important for me to share what happened. I said, but I'm doing it in a loving way. I said, I'm making sure to emphasize that like a dysfunctional family and a loving family aren't mutually exclusive, you know, and I've never, ever wanted it to come across as like, I'm shitting on them, you know, because they're just a product of their own experiences as well. You know, they, they they suffered in, yeah, they suffered in different ways. And I think, you know, I mean, I'm racking my brain as you're saying this, I don't think I've ever gave a specific anything about either of them. Mm. In any of the episodes, I keep it very general. I don't want to throw them under the bus. I don't want to like beat them up publicly, mm-hmm. you know, but you have to talk for this kind of work. You have to talk about your experiences. You can do it in a way and get your point across without blame. See, when we blame, we stay the victim. If I kept blaming them oh, for my right. life, I would be stuck forever. I don't blame them. I mean, it would be great if they'd be like, listen, <laughs> I'm sorry I shit on you the way you did and how it affected you. I didn't mean to. It's it's never going to happen, but I don't need it anymore. Mm-hmm. And I can't I can't blame them and I can't throw them under the bus. I mean, believe me, if I could have another 50 episodes in about three hours if I started just using specific examples, but I, I don't think it's fair to them. No, it's not. And I think, you know, whenever I make videos about this on Instagram or TikTok, you know, just the pushback that I get for like, not blaming and it's like by not blaming it's not that we're giving them a free pass like we're still acknowledging the herd and we're not saying that it was okay but it it 
it just, I think when we, when we remain rooted in blame, it's, it's like, we're not, my personal opinion is that we're not taking responsibility for our own healing. And like our parents can't go to fucking therapy for us and fix us. It'd be great if they could, but they fucking can't. It would be great if we could do it together. But I mean, my parents come from a generation, you know, I just got certified with New York state. I had to take this course on the history of mental illness in this country. And you think back into the 50s, 60s and 70s, they were locking people up unwillingly and giving them lobotomies, you know, in the 70s. They need to be doing that here in San Francisco, I think. (laughs) (laughs) There was no openness about mental health. Mm -hmm. For, For their generation, it was so shameful not to look perfect, especially being immigrants coming to this country, you know, through Ellis Island, that anything that made you not look shiny and glossy and good, they weren't going to go near. And mental health, there was, I mean, it's great how everybody can talk about it now. We have these platforms to do this, but you're talking less than 50 years ago. It was like the dark ages with it. And that's mm-hmm. kind of where they came from. And I'm again, it's, I'm not making excuses for them. It's just putting but things reality. into context. Yeah. It's reality. Yeah. And it's, I mean, especially too, with all the information now that we have about the brain, I mean, all that shit's like real fucking recent, you know? I remember when I was a teenager, my grandfather, he was like the only one I felt like I mattered to. And he died when I was 17. I went off the rails, man. You know, I OD'd. I was like, I was bad. And they wanted me to go to therapy. And I was so ashamed Mm. because nobody nobody was on meds. Nobody went to therapy. It was so like underneath, you know, it was so dark that it almost, it was like, if you went there, you felt like there was something seriously wrong with you. So it was a different time when they, they were raised. And I just think the way it's turned out, especially in the last decade and the way it's going, it just feels so freeing to be able to say, yeah, I'm not all that. And I have a lot of issues and this is how I've dealt with them. Do you feel the same? And people say, uh, yeah, <laughs> but I never told anybody. So it's that coming out of hiding thing in the, and the, and community that is so healing. Did you ever, um, make any direct amends to your children? Like, as a process, like as far as doing this or like, what have you noticed as far as, was there any guilt or shame as far as how you showed up as a parent prior to you, like really healing your trauma? I I mean, I feel like I was, I've always been very self-aware and I've been doing this work a long time. I did most of it intellectually until later in life. I realized that until you do it emotionally, you're not going to heal. So I, were you sober when the kids were born? Because you were in a, you were in recovery. I was for a sober while, right? when they were born. Okay. Yeah, I was sober. I was sober for seventeen years. It was yeah, um, shortly after the car accident mm-hmm. that I went out real hard. Yeah, I was woke back up in people's backyards. Yeah, I was blackout drinking within six weeks. It was ugly. Um, but I honestly, I made amends along the way. Mm-hmm. Like whenever I came down on them, I don't lose my shit often I don't get to that place of anger very often and when I do it's like a snap and I lose control verbally and it's happened a handful of times and I always within a few hours or no more than 48 hours I would go in and I would apologize and I would explain why I exploded how wrong it was that they didn't deserve it 
that if I was more evolved and better at this, I would have not let my anger get the best of me. Like I just wanted to always let them know that this had very little to do with them and it had a lot to do with me and my history. You know, and even when they did things wrong and it was, I tried to always have some kind of sensible reaction, but when I didn't, I apologized. And the funny thing is I was watching this thing on uh, TV about dads. It was a documentary and when my kids were little, it was the best time I've ever had. They're, they're ones in college, one's almost in college now. So it isn't the same like that, that loving little mm-hmm. kid thing. And I'm watching this thing about dads and I'm, I'm actually weeping as I'm watching it. And I, we have a group text with the three of us. And I, <clears throat> you know, I wrote them, you know, it was basically, listen, if I've ever made you feel not good enough, not worth it, not lovable enough, I apologize. I've done my best. Everything was out of love. I said, but I was broken and I didn't always do anything right, everything right. You, you know, and I just told them how great I thought they were. And, you know, I don't get any response back, which I'm not expecting one. Like, how do you even reply to that? You know what I mean? But when I get those feelings and it's hard for me to do that with them because it was never done to me by my parents and I don't want them to feel uncomfortable, but I also want them to know how important they are. And I never want anything the way I parented to affect them down the road. Mm -hmm. Mm. You're a good dad. Uh, Thank you. So when it comes to coaching and coaching with men, mm-hmm. what do you feel like that, do you feel like there's some unique challenges there or do you feel like you approach things differently? Let's, let's talk about men talking about their feelings. But I, I approach each client, male yeah. or female Unique. individually. Yeah. Um, they all have a, um, a certain way they deal with emotions. Some will come in and tell me, you know, I was incested when I was 11 right off the bat. I'll have other people that are still in their people pleasing role and they don't want to upset me, you know? So, and there's all dynamics in the middle. So I take it based on what their capacity for, um, I guess, emotional pain is and try to keep them going down that path with men they're all different as well. I think the common thread is they're talking to a man and to be vulnerable and emotional in front of a man is still a huge, huge stigma. Um, I can see how some of them start to get to something where they're starting to well up and right away, the conversation changes. They go in another direction. So I feel like they're not ready at that moment. I will try to drop breadcrumbs either later on in that session or a couple of sessions down the line, but it's, it's the vulnerability. It's being seen as sensitive and emotional um, that, that they have a hard time with. I have some that do not haven't let down their walls in three months and I can slowly start to see that they're building trust. They don't trust other men. They don't trust me sitting across from them. They don't trust me with their inner workings. They don't trust me with their hurt because they have learned that you do not show this to anybody, especially a man. So I find a lot of, you know, some of the clients that leave after a month or two, they never really build the trust to go further. The ones that make it past that trust point, 
Mm-hmm. Soon as they start to get past it, everything changes for the better. And then the, the healing and the growth speeds up. Mm-hmm. I, l- I want you to tell that story about the one date you had where the one was like, you're going to get eaten alive. Oh, oh God. Yeah, that was, um, where was I? <laughs> I was down over by Union Square and I got there early. It was, it was warm weather. It was spring. And I was standing out in front of the place, figured I'd meet her out front. We'd walk in together. And I could see her a block and a half away walking. And she just, her, just her strut was this, she just had this shit attitude. Like, it's like, I don't want to be here. How soon is this going to be over? I want to go home and watch whatever I'm binge watching. Like, I could just feel it from a block and a half away. And she got there. We sat down, we're having a glass of wine. We're talking. And uh, she looked, I said something. I don't know what, what I exactly said, but she goes, you know, you're going to get killed out here. I'm like, what does that mean? Because you can't be the way you are and not get crushed. I'm like, well, how am I being? She's like, well, you like honest and open. Like, <laughs> don't you know that you're going to get killed being that way? I said, oh, I apologize. Should I have come in as a fraud and pretended? And then six months down the line, turn into me and you're going to ask me, who is this guy that I've been dating for six months? I'm like, wouldn't you want me who I am up front? And I go, this isn't going anywhere, is it? She goes, absolutely not. I said, well, I have nowhere to be for another hour and a half. I'm like, you want another glass of wine? She's like, sure. And the rest of that date was great because there was no pressure on it. And we actually just laughed about dating stories. But yeah, she was telling, I'm going to get crushed out here. But I don't know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I feel you. <laughs> I'm just, it's just tr- you're trying to have fun with it, you know, um, just trying to take it for what it is. Walking the dog, taking out the garbage, doing the dishes, going on a date. All gets the same energy and power. Like I went on a date a, cu- a couple, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. And like, I could tell, I could tell pretty early on that I like was, he was not a good match. And so I just fucking like, let, like laid it all out, you know, like. <laughs> I'm like he must think usually I'm like a, trying to be a little bit like not trying to trauma dump um right. but I was just like this isn't going anywhere I'm gonna really just freak you out and then I just <laughs> <laughs> you have, even if it's not going good you try to have fun with it and it's oh, such yeah. a it's such a narrow margin of people clicking it's you know sometimes it's timing you can meet somebody now and it's the wrong time and you, if you met them five years later mm-hmm. it may be perfect you just, you never know. So don't put everything into it. Like this is the be all end all. You have to build a good, fulfilled, happy, enjoyable life on your own mm-hmm. to find somebody to compliment instead of being that codependent that they hate their life. They just want somebody to show up to take them out of their shitty existence and give them some excitement for a while. Cause when that person leaves and that relationships end, you're still stuck with your shitty life. So build your life, your way. And then the dating thing becomes so much less pressure and desperation to it. So do you have anything planned? What do you have coming up? What are you going to do some podcasts on? You got some topics coming up? I've kind of taken a little bit of a break. Um, I think I was having a a crisis of confidence, I guess you could call it. Um, I just... The people want it. I know. I just, you know what? I just felt like I needed a break. I had so much going on. You know, between social media, I've been studying a lot for my certification. So I just finished that. Um, that has occupied a lot of the time. 
the coaching always comes first and that's been busy. So that takes a lot of my time. And to be honest with you, after a day of four, five, six sessions, yeah, you're drained. it's, it's a little draining. And, um, so I, I've been kind of trying to take care of myself emotionally. You know, I was spread too thin with the, like, I hate social media. I hate having to post stuff. I hate the word algorithms and all the work involved and trying to, you know, to get ahead and, I said, I just got to figure out what's a comfortable way for me. I know I've been slacking on the podcast, um, but I feel like I have two or three brewing. So I'm hoping next week to actually turn on a microphone. I haven't done an interview in probably eight months either. Like I've been kind of MIA from, from everything. I just needed to work on school and health and, you know, get myself right and readjust. It was a runaway train. Like I just was trying to keep up with the train that left the station. I felt like, you know, it was just running at the back of it. There's somebody at, you know, at the end of the train waiting for me to catch up, to hold my hand, to pull me on. And I just was like, I got to wait till the train stops. Let it settle in the station and catch up to it and regroup. Oh, great. You're doing it. Thank You're you. doing it. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to next year's update. Uh, I should have one hopefully out this week. No, I'm next, saying week, next year. No, I'm saying next year in your adult child podcast update. Oh, okay. So yeah, we're hoping that you have it. some good material then. Okay. So get All out, right. get out there and start dating. <laughs> 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 Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I know you heard something that can help you on your own journey. And as always, if you didn't get some help and damn the join Patreon, uh, thanks again to Joe. Joe's so cool, isn't he, guys? Joe's so cool. He's a he's a solid dude. Um, what else? I don't know. It's late. It's eleven oh eight. I was gonna hoping to finish this uh, before my date, but then I literally spent like an hour and a half. Tr trying to make a fucking reel for Instagram that was literally like 13 seconds long and I spent like two hours on it. So I had to um, finish the episode when I got home. But it's 11 o'clock now and I need to edit this shit and I need to go to bed. So I will see you shit shows next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's gonna be super raw, super raw, super excited, beyond it. It's gonna be a good day, I promise. Yeah.